Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is uh, Dr. John Duke Anthony. I'm the founding president and chief executive officer of the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations. Uh, we have an extraordinary topic to be discussed, described, and analyzed and commented upon uh, by a team of superb specialists having to do with racism and prejudice in the United States and the Arab region. In the context of this, we owe a debt of thanks, especially to the King Faisal Center for Islamic Studies and Research, uh, which has been playing a pioneering role for more than uh, half a century uh, to enlighten and to educate and to form insights, knowledge, understanding, and improve people's critical analyses of matters pertaining to, especially Muslims worldwide, just under two billion. And on the part of the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations, Madrasa Watanili Alakat Arama Riki, Ana Ismi John Duke Anthony, Rais Watan Fidi. Uh, we have an annual policymakers conference, Arab US policymakers conference. Uh, this year will be at 29th, and it will be held November 17, 18, and 19. Of course, it will be virtually, uh, but we invite uh, one and all to uh, participate, being listener participants, and uh, we will send you a list of the confirmed speakers. Uh, momentarily. It's a blue ribbon cast. Now, this year marks 401 years uh, since the first slaves from Africa landed on the shores of the United States, indeed in my native uh, Virginia. Uh, truth in labeling, I was born and raised in the former capital of the Confederacy, uh, which had a lot to do with the Civil War, the war between the states, the northern states and the southern states, the latter trying to secede from 1861 to uh, 1865. We're also celebrating uh, this year an anniversary and a commemoration of the Emancipation Proclamation by our then-President Abraham Lincoln the emancipation of American slaves. And heavily, if not directly, more than partially for that, he paid for it, that decision, uh, with his life. And yet, almost a century later, indeed exactly a century later, one did not have the reality, let alone the sense, that those who had formerly been enslaved were indeed free, either legally, socially, politically, or otherwise. And therefore, you had to have three human rights, civil rights laws, 1963, 64, 65, in order to further enshrine the human and civil rights of Americans of color. And in my situation, my father uh, was a leader as the director of public safety 
in charge of police and fire departments for the city of Richmond. He was the first Southern leader to integrate the police and fire departments. Uh, it took 20 years before additional Southern leaders did so. And But these later Southern leaders had three federal laws at their back to support them. My father had no such support. Uh, he was alone, and he paid a mighty price for that. He was told his actions of moral courage uh, would kill his career, and kill his career, his decisions did. Uh, over the years, I've met some of those uh, African-Americans that he put on the police and fire departments. All of them expressed their gratitude and indebtedness to him and his leadership. And they all acknowledged the price that he paid. This also is the anniversary of an assassination of one of my closest friends, Jonathan Myrick Daniels, on August the 14th of 1965, when he was leading a delegation of African-American youths in a rural area of Georgia. Uh, to try to enlist African-Americans in the drive to register to vote and to exercise their human and civil rights. But bigotry uh, dies a slow death, if at all, in the minds and the heads, the hearts and the souls of some mortals. And a white segregationist uh, came after them to oppose what they were doing. And there were 12 African-American youth, and this white segregationist store owner, armed with a shotgun, came at the African-American leader of the delegation, Miss Ruby Sayre. And my friend Jonathan Marek Daniels, who was the only Caucasian amongst the delegation, stood in front of the would-be assassin, and he took the full force of the blast himself, and died on the spot. Now fast forward to May 26 of this year, when an African-American in the city of Minneapolis, Minnesota, George Floyd, uh, was killed in full view of millions uh, by the armed police officers of that city. Uh, since then, we're going on almost three months where the United States has been convulsed in protest and anger at the continuing and institutionalized injustices in the realm of law enforcement and criminal justice. And Muslims, of course, place the issue of the concept, the moral imperative of justice at the highest of their principles, their ideas, uh, their ideals, in terms of a righteous life in the eyes of the Almighty. We have a lot of work to do. On September the 11th, 2001, uh, there was a major act of violence in the United States. It was wrongly attributed to Saudi Arabians as the instigators. They were the foot soldiers, yes, but not the conceptualizers, uh, not the leaders, uh, not the rationalizers, not the so-called justifiers. Uh, but they paid a heavy price, and 
a degree of anti-Arabism and anti-Islam kicked in into overdrive uh, like America up until then had not seen in almost more than a century. In Saudi Arabia, in Mamlaka Arabia Saudi, in March of 2003, was the equivalent of an act of violence in the compound of the Haras al-Watani, the National Guard. And so each of our sides needs to increase our compassion and our empathy for the other. And yet we must be careful of the word and the concept of other, uh, because other is what much of this is all about. Uh, people who do not understand, respect, revere, and accept another than themselves refer to them as wahed minhum, or one of them. And this objectifies our fellow human beings to dominate, to manipulate, to control, to influence them, all of which is uh, unseemly, tawdry, sordid, and patently, grossly unfair. And none of us would have this kind of prejudice enacted upon ourselves. So if we're specialists in this, if we're leaders, uh, we know what we have to do and how we have to do it. We must not give up. We cannot afford to give in. There's no surrender in the pursuit of justice. And this session will enlighten all of us for certain, inshallah. I turn it over to the two co-leaders of this webinar, Joshua, Joshua Yaffe and Miss Hanin. Uh, thank you again, and welcome to this webinar. And may all of our consciences and conceptual strength and activism be strengthened as a result. Thank you, Professor Anthony. We appreciate that. Those are wonderful remarks. Just to give a little better sense of the, the topic that we're doing today in a little more detail, uh, I'd just like to say Western ideas about race have always been contradictory, inconsistent, and often incoherent, perpetuated <clears throat> by a fiction that there is such a thing as a single universal concept of race, and believing in a fantasy that one population can forever dominate another. Yet the way racism has been applied in society has had a profound impact on people's lives. It's divided families, communities, and societies, relegated whole populations to poverty, servitude, enslavement, injury, and death. Concepts of race in the Arab world have also had a strong impact on people's lives, even if attitudes in the Arab world were more flexible, less dogmatic, or codified than in North America. In the Arab world, there were never the kinds of laws and regulations that became part and parcel of segregation and slavery in North America. The state of Virginia, where I was born, uh, passed a decree saying in 1668 that enslaved Africans converting to Christianity would remain slaves. And in 1691, Virginia passed another ordinance banning interracial marriage. That kind of absolute exclusionary racism, mandated by law and subject to corporal punishment, did not exist in the Arab world, where there was still some degree of personal protection and social mobility for slaves and freed persons. For the Prophet Muhammad, there was no difference between an Arab and a non-Arab, or between a white or a black person. The Quran says very strictly, all people are children of Adam, and Adam was created out of dust. The Islamic faith envisioned an egalitarian society, equality for people, for Muslims, certainly. Yet racial difference and discrimination existed after the death of the Prophet. 
especially in, in the Madhab that emerged in the eighth and ninth centuries. And they were justified in many parts of the region by the social prestige of owning a slave or by biblical narratives about the curse of Ham or by calls for jihad against unbelievers living on the margins of the Islamic empire. Almost throughout the pre-modern era, skin color was a marker for individual capacity and social achievement. Both Ibn Battuta and Ibn Khaldun associated darker skin colors with inferior capacities and uncivilized customs. Islam as a religion is colorblind, but all human beings are capable of bias and unfairly judging others. And so we are here today to talk about that, racism and prejudice in America and the Arab world. With that, I want to welcome my colleague, Hanina Sedais from the King Faisal Center for Research in Islamic Studies. She'll be joining me to moderate in the conversation today. Hanin, I'd like to turn it over to you. Um, thank you, Josh. And uh, I would like first to thank the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations for this collaboration. Um, and also, I would like to welcome everyone who's joining us today in this uh, discussion, where we're going to, ha to, to have a discussion on uh, racism and uh, prejudice in, uh, uh, in America and uh, the Arab world. Uh, now, uh, racism uh, can be a very sensitive topic uh, uh, in the Middle East. Um, unfortunately, not so many people have been vocal about it in the region. Um, the Middle East um, is uh, culture-rich with, uh, with people uh, of different ethnicities and religious um, that, uh, that can... Um, uh, with people of different ethnicities and uh, religious that uh, can uh, coalition uh, between them and raise issues like racist issues uh, uh, and words uh, that can ca uh, cause a problem with the, between the people. Uh, and also sometimes uh, racism can be unconsciously uh, happens between the people. Uh, also, I want to add that the term uh, racism is generally conceived uh, in a Western culture, leaving the question of what would be racism in the uh, Middle Eastern uh, context. Uh, the topic of racism is not addressed routinely in the Arab literatures, uh, literature, likely uh, for this reason. So in this topic uh, and in this discussion today, it would be good to shed the light on this topic uh, and uh, discuss it more. Uh, we're very glad to have four experts uh, who's going to talk about it from different perspectives. And uh, we will start with our first speaker, uh, Dr. Huda Lehlesi, who's, who's going to talk about it, uh, uh, about the diversity in Saudi Arabia. So uh, Dr. Huda uh, Lehlesi, uh, she is a member of the Shura Council and uh, a consultant of the Peru of experts. Uh, so welcome, Dr. Huda. Uh, my question to you is about the diversity and uh, is, uh, is usually, usually Saudi Arabia is, uh, is a country uh, that is labeled as a hegemonic society. But in reality, uh, Saudi Arabia is diverse and there is a lot of diversity among its people. So, uh, and that it can be reflected by its geographical location. Uh, so my question to you, how is this diversity being promoted by the government? Uh, it's over to you now. Okay. First of all, thank you very much for having me. Um, I prepared a little something, if you don't mind, um, so that I can read it and hopefully we'll answer the question through that. Um, I'm so glad that we that we heard the quote of the Prophet Muhammad. This is how I started. 
that there is no superiority of an Arab over a non-Arab or of a non-Arab over an Arab and no superiority of, on, of a white person over a black person or of a black person over a white person, except on the basis of personal piety and righteousness. This was said by Prophet Muhammad, who was really the first person to proclaim racial equality at a time when prior to Islam, al-Jahiliyyah was an era of ignorance and prejudice, including racism, and reflected the misguided view that a person's race mirrors moral character and social status. In other words, all people are equal. Today, globalization has brought us closer together, made us more diverse and interconnected, and yet discrimination, racial tensions, and violence are on an upwards trend globally. And the words of the prophet are all the more viable as they touch the very core of humanity. We were created different and diverse. As mentioned in chapter 49, verse 13 of the Quran, O humankind, we have made you into nations and tribes so that you may get to know one another. And yet there hasn't been a time in history when these very differences were not at the root of some sort of conflict or war or prejudice. Racism takes on many forms and has a variety of reprehensible consequences, starting from biological race and developing into exploitation and the more commonly seen human invention of cultural differences. Racism goes beyond words or beliefs. It touches attitudes and behavior, is disdainful and disrespectful, affects the dignity and self-esteem of victims and as such harms society in general. Racism is the power of one group to affect the lives of others. Racism has been with us forever and is a global problem existing on various levels and degrees. It is a word that holds many connotations depending on how it is used. Basically said, it is the feeling of superiority of one race, usually the white race, over another, people of all colors, which translates itself through dis discriminatory behavior, exploitation, violence or control to the ben benefit of the so-called superior or dominant race and which expresses itself explicitly or implicitly. Going further, racism privileges individuals and groups and affects social, educational, and governmental institutions. Racism is a vehicle of recognition and admission of differences between peoples, communities, cultures, faiths, traditions, and deeds, provoking disruptiveness, divisiveness, and dissension, prompting hatred and misunderstanding based on suspicion and doubt. Racism is not only founded on hatred, it is also built on ignorance and fear usually of minorities who are seen as threats to national identity or social security. We have seen countries which once prided themselves on being multicultural and multi-faith fight the very richness of their diverse social fiber in the name of nationalism. The melting pot of globalization is rapidly being replaced by inner-looking individualism, which can no longer accept the other, the different or the diverse, and which breeds sentiments of prejudice, discrimination, and sectarianism. In addition, not all our behavior is done consciously. Some of it is influenced by implicit attitudes or subconscious feelings or convictions we are not aware of. Stereotyping is a result of racism. Certain jokes and generalizations are difficult to detect as being racist because racism can only be very can also be very subtle as opposed to overt. Hidden meanings behind seemingly innocent comments. And one such example is to be found in commercials where women who have been have, have always been portrayed according to a certain standard, uh, white with straight hair, pressurizing other women to seek this ideal. So dark-skinned women, Asian women, African women, and Middle Eastern women bleach their skin and straighten their hair in order to be accepted by the standards dictated by a prejudiced, predominantly white society that colonized most of the world. The reason for racism can differ from country to country. 
and maybe based on cultural, religious, historic, tribal, or economic reasons, to name but a few, leading to racial disadvantages and creating an imbalance of power based on race. As long as I can remember, Saudi Arabia has been in the news, more negatively than not. Saudi Arabia has rarely been painted with a positive brush by the West, and regular stereotypes have depicted both the country and its citizens. From a young age living abroad, I knew I was different, and although children are not born racist, they quickly mimic their parents and peers and repeat their ignorant comments. At the time, I didn't understand that their remarks were racist, and I can still remember the taunting words that were thrown at me at, the, at that very young age. From the mocking Arabs eat sheep's eyes to do you go to school on a camel and sleep in a tent, the list was long. And more importantly, these comments are based on ignorance of the unknown and fear of the different. As a child grows up, so does the mastery of his language. And with time, racist stereotypes on Saudis and Saudi Arabia have become more blatant and include terrorism and terrorists as generalizations, Islamophobia, the dreaded veil, as well as human and women rights, all still shrouded in ignorance and fear. Now, just last winter, a small group of friends and I, all women, some with a scarf, others without, were refused entry in a practically empty restaurant in Paris with the claim that all the tables were booked. At New York's JFK in January, I was the random check with the immigration, with the immigration officer clearly marking my boarding pass, and I was leaving the U.S., a year ago in Los Angeles, we were stopped at the airport because my son fitted the police profile of a possibly dangerous person. Might I add that at the time he was on a wheelchair, having just had knee surgery. I understand that these actions are taken as security measures, but generally speaking, it can be very difficult today to be a Muslim abroad, more so a Saudi, worse still, a Saudi woman wearing a hijab. Racist comments or actions have a tendency to follow them. Now, does racism exist in Saudi Arabia? After the Prophet's words, one would love to say no. But racism is ingrained in the human race and usually lays dormant until something or someone awakens it. I would be lying to say it doesn't exist in the cradle of Islam. But what can be said is that perhaps it exists on a different scale than the way it is expressed elsewhere. Now, let me start by saying that Article 12 of the Saudi Law of Governance states that promoting national unity is a duty and the state shall prevent whatever leads to disunity, sedition, and division. And Article 39 adds, whatever leads to sedition and division or undermines the security of the state or its public relations or is injurious to the honor and rights of man shall be prohibited. The kingdom stresses the criminalization of all forms of racial discrimination, and the new draft legislation is being studied to prohibit discrimination and religious hatred and promote a culture of tolerance and respect for human rights and preserve national cohesion. Additionally, Article 3 of the Labour Law has been amended as follows. Citizens are equal in the right to work without any discrimination on the basis of sex, disability, age, or any other form of discrimination. The other Gulf states also have laws which forbid discrimination founded on gender, origin, colour, language, religion, sect, domicile, or social status, sentencing violators to imprisonment and or a large fine. And this includes media platforms. And although laws and policies cannot change mindset, they can nevertheless restrain social contact, conduct and attitudes. Now, if I were to create a list of the kinds of racism that exists in Saudi Arabia, I would be at a loss, but would probably start with tribal racism, which has existed in the re region for centuries and is most, most apparent in the choice of marital partners. It has to do with traditions and heritage and, quote unquote, keeping it in the family. 
Racism can also exist between tribes and is rooted in the history of the country when conflicts between them were once common. Next would be regional racism, which exists by the mere fact that Saudi Arabia is such a vast country and that each region is like a country in itself with different foods, clothes, music and habits. And this diversity, which enriches the, the kingdom on all levels, can be seen as derogatory by some. Another form would be the urban versus the nomad or Bedouin, where one group believes that the other is inferior because they don't abide by the same rules and their actions are considered uncivilized. These tendencies exist everywhere in the world, but with different labeling. So we can compare them to farmers or cattle raisers and city dwellers or urban versus rural, with each group having its own practices. I believe that these forms of racism are diminishing because of education, because these invisible borders are blending, because there is mass migration towards large cities for work, and because younger generations are, in general, more accepting. I'm going to talk a little bit about racial race, uh, religious racism, which I believe is a topic that needs to be discussed more openly by different entities. There is no doubt that there is a correlation between racism and religion. And we have seen many hate crimes based on religions and religious discrimination take place around the world in the last few years. Certain people will look at the visual aspect of a person, for example, a religious attire, or link him to a certain religious ritual or practice, such as circumcision or the slaughter of animals, and judge them accordingly because of hate, fear, or ignorance. I believe religious racism has always existed in one way or another, but what is hugely problematic is the fact that people are actually taking measures to fight other faiths in the violent ways we are seeing today. The Saudi government has taken measures to fight extremist religious ideologies by promulgating a counter-terrorism law and by fighting religious extremism, which usually leads to terrorism. Preachers who spread hate speeches in their sermons have been stopped and citizens are requested to report any discourse that can lead to discrimination, hatred or racism. Now, President Trump's campaign to become leader of America and by extension the world has brought to the surface racist reactions that as humans, we would rather not know we possess. From Latinos to Muslims to African-Americans and Chinese, Trump's rhetoric has touched them all. And it's no wonder then that pockets of racists are pursuing discriminatory actions across the US. Europe's white supremacy or nationalist movements are thriving. Some are openly violent, others use the word populist. Regardless of the tag, they are racist and target immigrants or minorities because they see them as a threat to their livelihood and the root cause of their economic problems. The refugee influx into Europe has brought a new reality to the status quo, not just of the unknown, but also of the unusual. Foods, smells, clothes, sounds, etc., which had previously only existed in TV documentaries. They are marginalized and live in camps because it is easier to deal with them as outsiders. Now, with regard to the kingdom, our refugees are not marginalized, nor do they live in camps. The government has done its best to accommodate them and has been able to integrate them as part of the fiber of society by giving them every human right possible, from education to health to work, etc. We have always had minority groups living in Saudi Arabia, but certainly because of unrest in their countries, we have seen a marked increase in this population. Although unemployment among Saudis is high, the kingdom is standing by the suggested quota. Racism based on skin color is another sensitive subject, but I don't believe it to be as magnified in Saudi Arabia as it is in Europe or the US, where actions are taken against people of color, their property or even their livelihood through lack of opportunities. 
This, however, does not mean it doesn't exist. And an example of this would be the fact that until today, interracial marriages are far from being the norm. Racism towards other nationalities is a global issue. And Saudis, as members of the human race, share, but to a lesser degree, these sentiments. It can transpire in the way they talk to certain people. And interestingly, it usually targets those in the lower income bracket, which leads me to ask whether this kind of racism should be labeled economic racism based on financial status, which is linked to social or class racism. Would the reaction be the same had the person in question been rich or a CEO of the same nationality? And because racism hits the most vulnerable members of society, those who are excluded or, who, or those who are in economic difficulties, those who are easy targets of violence, a few words must be said regarding discrimination against women, which is expressed in different forms and different contexts. If women, per se, as a gender, are vulnerable, a lot more can be said about women of ethnic minorities. The poorest people in the world are women, and some suffer the worst kinds of racial discrimination, human trafficking, and sexual violence. Saudi Arabia has seen reforms to better the lives of women, starting with education and giving them their rights to help them develop and progress both on a personal and economic level, and by extension, the country is also benefit benefiting economically. Now, this subject is so vast and can be talked about endlessly because it, is, it has numerous facets. So to conclude, I will say that our differences in diversity should be applauded and encouraged. The 20th century was one of uniformity because of globalization, eating the same things, dressing the same way, with clearly marked educational and career paths. The 21st century, in which technology is playing a big role, is emphasizing more and more the individual. And yet, tolerance and acceptance seem to have regressed in many societies, regardless of the fact that travel and the Internet have been a source of knowledge and discovery. We need more compassion and understanding. If we are to scratch at the surface of racism and education, inclusion and awareness are keys to saving our humanity from senseless, meaningless acts. Our world is not monocultural and those who advocate cultural separatism, fundamentalist ideologies or populism must be stopped. Thank you. Thank you. We really appreciate it. If we can mute our microphones, that'd be excellent. Um, what I'd like to do next is introduce our second speaker, Dr. Shauki Alhamal. Dr. Shauki is professor in the School of Historical, Philosophical, and Religious Studies and the Center for Maghreb Studies at Arizona State University. He's also the author of Black Morocco, a History of Slavery, Race, and Islam. And what I'd like to start out with, Dr. Shauki, is I'd like to, to get your sense. The historical narratives of Arab identity and Arab roots have often obscured or covered up the diverse origins of Black Africans in the Maghreb. There were indigenous Black populations like the Haritan, slaves and their descendants, especially from those imported after Morocco conquered the Songhe Kingdom in the late 16th century, and Islamic scholars and students from West Africa who sought opportunities for study and career. What can you tell us about these different Black populations in North Africa and the relationships they had with Berber and Arab communities that they encountered? Can you see me? Hello. I appreciate what my colleagues uh, have just said. So I will add, I will speak in the same vein. Thank you so much, Josh. Uh, and the whole organization for doing this. This is amazing. So it's, as they say in English or in the US, it's about time, right? Uh, to tackle these issues. So I give 
brief presentation that will uh, that will answer in a nutshell it will answer your question. Um, a healthy and democratic society must confront all forms of discrimination and supports racial equality and social justice. Do you hear me? Okay. <laughs> I see the faces nodding. Okay. According to the principles of human rights, we must stand in solidarity with Black Lives Matter in the aftermath of the recent horrific events triggered by police brutality and the senseless killing of many Black citizens, such as George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Arbery, and Richard, and Richard Brooks. The easy use of technology and access to the internet over the last decade, helped expose police brutality and stimulate popular protests in the US as well as in the rest of the world. As we speak now, protesters have clashed against the police in Kenosha, Wisconsin, over the shooting of Jacob Blake by a white policeman. History teaches us that the deadly force and the intense intimidation the police inflict on the black minority is a product of structural, structural racism. This racial dichotomy implies systematic inequality that is entrenched in the legacy of racial slavery and capitalist mode of production. The criticism of slavery during the abolitionist movement in the late 19th century was so broad that constituted the precursor to most progressive movements of the 20th, 20th and 21st centuries, such as Black Lives Matter, Occupy Wall Street, Civil Rights Association, International Human Rights uh, Organization, Women's, uh, women's uh, Rights, Occupy Wall, Street, uh, Occupy, Occupy Wall Street, Civil Rights Association, and uh, labor movements, etc. The, the American Anarchist movement has been endless, and the long fight for equality continues to lay the groundwork for racial justice advocacy in the U.S., and in many other places in the world. The, African, the American event stimulated worldwide debate on colonialism and race relations. And so that's why we're having this forum, this debate right now. Our world is also confronting unprecedented challenges aimed at rise, rising budget cuts, unemployment and poverty in the wake of the pandemic-induced recession. The pandemic is a, remind, is a, remind, a reminder of how endemic issues of injustice and injustices and racism have persisted too long and how we fail to properly address and eradicate them. Now, I speak on the topic from my perspective. Racial prejudices, slavery and its legacies, caste systems and their social implications are affecting the lives of millions of Africans. My research focuses mainly on slavery, racism, and racism in North Africa. I have argued in my book, Black Morocco, that concepts of race and racism are not a Western invention and have traced distinct genealogies of race and racism to North Africa in the Islamic period. I am aware that in arguing for the existence of race and racism in pre-colonial North Africa may feed Orientalism and support apologies to Western racism against Islam. But to insist on Islamic Africa Color blind tradition is to contribute to the culture of silence and to enforce a hegemony of a dominant culture where black people are stigmatized and marginalized. The topic of race and racism breaks the boundaries of area studies, stressing implications, not only of our understanding of Islamic societies, but also for the transnational nature of the history of these concepts. I am also aware of the implications of this debate 
within the post-colonial reactionary literature that intends to socialize or accuse the fate of Islam for many social ills. The emphasis on this transcendence does not undermine the singularity of each region, and it does, conf it does not confine, it, and it does not confine opposed cultures in one category. The refusal to admit, for instance, the fundamental uh, role of Morocco that, ha that has played in the enslavement of black Moroccans and West Africans is a huge obstacle to understand the impact of past injustices and their legacy in contemporary times. The hegemonic Arab and other light-skinned North African culture subjugated black ancestry and linked it to slavery and other negative attributes. The most cherished concept among some African scholars is hybridity, hybridity and rapprochement. Yes, this, this is only one version to celebrate Af African and Middle Eastern historical connections. However, the process of assimilation and blood mixing masks the dismissal of the natural affiliation of sub-Saharan Africans and manufactured Arab hegemony and political unity. Hence, even people descended from mixed marriages do not see any ambivalence in claiming one identity, namely the Arab lineage in North Africa. The racist discourse is deeply, this racist discourse is deeply embedded in the assimilationist process and cultural prejudice and concealed or silenced other elements that were crucial, the crucial part of the construction of one's identity. Consequently, the North African encounters have not had a sustained scholarly focus with respect to slavery and race as other studies in European colonialism and post-colonialism. To get out of this epistemology of denial, the culture of silence must end. Uh, not only there is no clear concept of race and racism, there is, uh, we just say, uh, there, there is actually no language that addresses these issues. The lack of the language to approach these issues does not only affect the attitudes of the oppressor, oppressors, but it affects those who were oppressed and suffered the horrors of servitude, subjugation, and the ridicule of racial hierarchy. Historians think that slavery, that uh, slave trade and slavery ended in, for instance, in, in Morocco as a consequence of the French colonial protectorate and the introduction of the capitalist system. And it is clear that there were no serious, there were no serious efforts from the government, scholars, or progressive parties to advocate for enacting a formal decree to ban slavery. The focus on the abolitionist movement undermines the agency of resistance to slavery and its crucial role in the abolition itself. The memory of slavery is still a personal issue among the descendants of enslaved people living in the rural areas of Morocco in towns and villages such as Handakarehan and Bnisalah in the Reef Mountains and in Tata and Akka in the Saharan Oasis. So now I make some, some claims. Despite the diversity of the, and the Africanity of Morocco, I use this term in the sense of being African, not to mean just having African links, origins, or roots. Slavery was profoundly shaped by ethnic and racial identity, identities politics that divorced Morocco from its Africanness. From the earliest North African text, West Africa was described, described as Bilad the Sudan, the land of the, of the Blacks and often associated the black racial identity with slavery and belief and backwardness. And even today in Morocco, Africa and Africans are reserved to blacks and blackness is equated with backwardness, inferiority, and even crimes. Racial and geographic categories were created by Arab historians 
and geographers in medieval times and how to create Africa otherness within Africa. Black Africa was the inferior other to the Middle Eastern Arab long before it was adopted in Western racial discourse. The denial of Moroccan Africanity is embedded in the written official text, historical text, discourse, and popular culture, and therefore it created an epistemological gap and barriers. Moroccan Arabic sources assert that all black people in Northwest Africa were originally slaves who had been freed under different circumstances through time. However, one group of black people, namely the Haratin, was not of slave origin from sub-Saharan Africa, but rather were native to southern Morocco. I don't want to implicitly seem to single out one group and undermine another group of so-called black people. The other group called, known as Abid, this, this term by, by the way should be abolished just like the N-word in the US, was illegally enslaved from West Africa. I further claim that most black West Africans, if not all, were illegally enslaved according to the same Maliki doctrine that established the institution of slavery. In addition to the lack of sources documenting the history of indigenous Haratin and the black people in Morocco, blackness was homogenized, obscuring the origin of the Haratin and undermining the diverse origins and historical migration of black Africans. The change in the meaning of the Haratin into the synonym of ex-slaves came to exist during Moulay Ismail project who, uh, around 1700 um, to create an ro a royal army by enslaving all black Moroccans, either by buying them, being those who were already enslaved, or enslaving those who were ex-slaves because they were black of African descent. It was an ideological construct to justify the segregation of free blacks. So here I summarize one important thing in Moroccan history regarding blackness and black Moroccans. There are two, we just have to remember two key moments that determined the enforced blackness in the history of Morocco. The conquest of the song of Songhai, Al-Mansur in 1591, uh, and the creation of the black army by Moulay Ismail around 1700. They were two factors that imposed Arab hegemony and homogenized blackness that became a legal category. But uh, for Moulay, for uh, Asadi in 1591, the, uh, uh, his project to invade Songhai was opposed by the by scholars, by the religious scholars of the ulama, uh, but he convinced them that, uh, that he, he could invade Songhai because the Songhai were not of Qureshi descent. Um, here, I just like to summarize by saying that the North Africa and Middle East region shares the share the prejudice against the brown dark race and still conceitedly label them as backward and third worldist, internalizing the racist colonial Western discourse. Therefore, these cultural practices they are overflowing and overlapping between the East and the West. So most countries are members of the UN and therefore must adhere to the ideals of the UN Human Rights Charter that must pro promote its ideals of racial equality and social justice. As scholars and educators, we need to reflect more on the current situation, take position, and make the injustices in the present and in the past visible in order to achieve a meaningful change and contribute to a just and better world.
Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Shoukri, for um, uh, this very insightful talk. And uh, now we're going to uh, to our third speaker, Dr. Ismail Koshkosh, a freelance journalist and a fellow at the Schoenberg Center for Research in uh, Black Culture, who is going to talk to talk about the Arab African uh, in the Middle East. Uh, so welcome, Dr. Ismail. And uh, my question to you is, um, in the Sudanese identity, there is a complex interplay between being Arab, African, and Sudanese. So how do you see this is uh, reflected on the um, Sudanese in terms of racism, uh, especially the, the, immigrant, the immigrant workers? Uh, do you think that the, the Sudanese immigrant workers who are working in the Arab world uh, face uh, racism? Well, first, let me uh, again thank uh, the organizers of, of this event. You know, as someone who is Sudanese, who was born in the U.S. and lived in the U.S. and the Middle East, including Kuwait and Syria, um, what were private discussions among family members and friends, this is probably the first time in my 48 years that this is a public discussion. Um, so again, uh, thank you for um, this um, event. Um, and I, I do want to uh, reiterate what some of the uh, the first two speakers um, had uh, emphasized on the issue and the problems of uh, terminology concepts, um, such as the word race, um, and, uh, in, in the Arabic language, in finding the equivalent in the in the Arabic language. This is the third event that I am a part of to discuss this very same issue. And um, with other panelists uh, who were speaking in Arabic, we, we, we agreed that there was a difficulty in choosing the right Arabic terms to uh, discuss this. Uh, so this you know, clearly is an issue that is um, fresh in the Arab world that needs um, its, its, its own discourse um, as we move forward. Now, in, in, in the case of Sudan, I think when we talk about identity in Sudan, um, there is an issue of, uh, and this could be applied to the, the larger Arab region and the Arab world, is you know the question of who is an Arab? Um, who do we define as an Arab? Um, is it an ethnic term? Is it a cultural term? Um, is, are these countries uh, homogeneous? Um, are they multicultural? Um, what other groups exist be, uh, beyond the uh, dominant um, Arab groups? And, and this is, has been at the root of some of Sudan's issues and other countries in the region. Um, in, in Sudan, um, um, you know, we tend to think of Sudan as being a country that is both Arab and African or inhabited by both Arabs and, and African. Um, the reality is, is that, you know, those who describe themselves as, as Arab in, in Sudan um, are, for the most part, um, Arabized or mixed. Um, you know, the tendency is to think of, of, of uh, migrations that came from different parts in the region, from the Arabian Peninsula, from North Africa, that came into what today, uh, the country that we call Sudan, um, historically the Sultanate of Sinar or Nubia, um, and intermixed and produced most of the, you know, the population that uh, today that is uh, speaking, that speaks Arabic, that is, defines itself as Arab. That is either through uh, patrilineal lineage, 
Um, the tendency is to think, uh, you know, as uh, patrilineally um, from Arab fathers and from Nubian or from African mothers, um, or the adoption of Arab culture, the dominance of the Arabic language. But this is how um, identity is, is complex in a place like Sudan. Um, how do you define yourself in, in terms of modern ideas of, of identity, and especially, you know, with the modern nation state and foreign policy and, and locally and in and, and terms, you know, I, I, I always, you know, bring this, this example as, you know, as someone who grew up in the U.S., when filling out your, you know, applications, whether for college or for, for work, I mean, where do you define yourself? How do you define yourself as, do you define yourself as black or do you decide yourself as brown? You know, as, you know, especially when, you know, there is no clear definition of, you know, where do Arabs uh, fall in, 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 um, in, in the census uh, in, in the U.S.? Um, and, and many Sudanese would, would also have that, that, that same um, um, experience. So th this, this tension of, of, of what is Arab and how it plays in Sudan and, 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 and how it intersects with power uh, and wealth, um, who owns, who are the decision makers, who are the politicians, um, this, this has been a part of the, the debate and identity in Sudan and, and more or less has contributed to conflict. When, when you have groups of people that uh, feel that they don't belong to the national narrative, um, like South Sudanese um, before the creation or the independence of South Sudan, like what you have in Darfur in the, or in the Nuba Mountains, um, identity becomes intertwined with um, a sense of political and economic uh, marginalization. So that's, um, that's how identity um has played a, a part in in in, um, in in Sudan in the Arabness and blackness in in, in terms of, of Sudan. Now on on the issue of Sudanese migrants in in the Arab world, I mean again I give my own life example. I lived in Kuwait. I lived in Syria. Um, what what were private discussions? This is the first time that we are publicly discussing this. I mean many Sudanese have felt that they've been mistreated. Um, have had to deal with slurs like Abid slave, you know, which is very common um, in different parts of that. The equivalents in other parts are, are terms like Khal, like Wasif in North Africa. Um, um, you know, the 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 the, uh, the 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 usage of the of the phrase Bambu Sudani, um, which is from a, a 50s 60s Sudanese song, uh, Bambu Sudani as a, a um, in, in a derogatory way um, is is something that many Sudanese who grew up in different um, Arab countries will tell you that 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 was their experience that they they feel that they were um, looked down upon um, not seen really as um, as as equal so that um, it you know it it is complex not everyone has the same experience but 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 the, but the bottom line is that. This idea of seeing Sudanese as lesser um, Arabs or, or or not equally, um, that is something many uh, Sudanese uh, have complained about that I've spoken to and uh, that have lived in different parts of, of the Arab world. Okay, okay very good. If you can your microphone. Our, our next speaker is Dr. Mohamed Al-Wahaib. 
Dr. Muhammad is chair of the philosophy department at Kuwait University. He did his dissertation on the thought of Hannah Arendt. Uh, Dr. Muhammad, I'd like to turn it over to you, and I'd like to uh, just note some of the things that we've heard from our speakers already, the, the difficulty in defining these issues in the Arab world, the lack of a discourse around them, the, the uh, challenge in uh, people self-identifying in hyphenated ways, African Arab or, or other types of varieties, and the way that racism uh, also applies to different religious beliefs, the way that people view other religions and other faiths in the region as something that is other, something that is different, and perhaps to be looked down upon. Uh, I'd like to turn it over to you and get your general thoughts on what we've heard so far. Dr. Mohammed. Uh, thank you, Josh. I hope you hear me clearly. Everybody. Yes. Perfect. So um, first of all, I would like to thank the organizers, the National Council on U.S. Relations, I will try to shed some light on, on the topic of racism um, in relation to other related topics such as prejudice, bias, tribalism, and sectarianism uh, uh, that Dr. Al-Halasi spoke about earlier. But I'll, I'll try to take a look at them from like from a political uh, perspective. And so I would like to argue in this short presentation that these social diseases uh, such as prejudice, racism, bias, tribalism, sectarianism are parts of a pre-political order that was supposed to be abolished with the birth of the modern constitutional Arab um, state. Um, I illustrate that this is not the case. Actually, I believe that the modern Arab state, for different reasons, has failed to instill confidence in modern democratic values. Uh, the modern Arab state uh, today, I believe, is a hybrid state that still carries the traces and contradictions of the free political order and uh, the modern democratic values embodied in the constitution. So I will, what I say here actually applies to almost every Arab country, or most of them. And, um, but I will try as well, you know, just going from Kuwait to shed some light up, up on the, the Kuwaiti case. Uh, so the Arab countries and Kuwait is a, is a diverse country. Um, people come from, people came to this place from, uh, many regions from the whole Arabia, Africa, uh, Bahrain, and Persia. Um, the Al Sabah family ruled this country for almost 250 years uh, prior to the birth of the modern state, like 60 years ago, with the birth of the Constitution in 1962. Now, the birth of the modern Arab state, with, with a lot of historical reasons that we don't want to go through now, uh, followed a model, and, and, and this model was the um, European nation-state, uh, a, a European nation-state um, with its constitution, its the international treaties, the uh, Declaration of Human Rights, etc. All these were embodied in the, in the Arab constitution, and of which Kuwait, uh, Kuwait is one. Uh, what, I was, what, I was, what I'm trying to say is that, like, the birth of the modern Arab state is is usually referred to as the reasonable state. It's where it's 
and what is meant by this is the is that it is a nation that is um, defined ultimately by its uh, borders. So um, people on the ground were diverse, coming from different uh, origins, and they were ruled and by whatever uh, constitution, whatever ruling family, until the birth of the modern state, following uh, the liberation, the fall of the Ottoman Empire, etc., etc. So, uh, these regional states, they were founded uh, in accordance with the requirements and interests of international foreign policies of major Western nations. Each regional state started to build its own character, such as a new flag, a specific political regime, a new national anthem, etc. This was actually uh, a good opportunity to start a democratic polity. However, like many good opportunities, this opportunity was lost. Uh, so there was one important advantage for the modern Arab state that was born like around the 50s, the 40s, and the 60s. Uh, following the nation-state model of Europe, the Arab modern state tried to initiate some hesitant democratic experiments. Some did advance new constitutions, emphasizing many universal principles embodied in international treaties. But the gap between the ideals of these constitutions and reality was really deep. Among the Gulf countries, however, um, H.M. Rizzo claims that Kuwait has gone the furthest in the democratization process by establishing, I'm quoting, a constitution as well as a parliamentary-like body of elected representatives called the National Assembly and allowed women in 2006 to be part of this, um, this parliament. Um, this shift from a pre-political structure of association, which is mainly tribal and Islamic, to a political one in the form of the modern democratic state, brought into being a hybrid structure of values that has a dual character. First, the tribal, Islamic, and second, the democratic or the constitutional. So many undemocratic practices in Arab states today can be only justified through that dual character of our distorted system of values, such as the marginalization of some minority groups, tribal and sectarian primaries, the ascending of someone to a higher government position, not because of his or her merits, but simply because of their ethnic or religious ties. This new distorted stru structure of values paved the way for endless contradicted dualisms that we debate in our culture today. E, for example, uh, belonging to a tribal alliance or civil associations, secularism or the rule of religion or Sharia, etc., etc. This new distorted structure of values is marked by freedom. The freedom from all values that might determine and direct our action. It is a negative freedom then, since it turns us away from all values that might control and govern human association. People in the region today are free to act in accordance with whatever structure of values they find um, uh, plausible to them or of, the, of their interests, whether it's tribal, Islamic, or modern. It all depends on what they want. So although Kuwait, as well as other Arab countries, might boast a constitutional 
and constitution and a national assembly, the power of the national assembly has been questioned. And it has been likened to what John Rawls called a consultation hierarchy. And so instead of democratic, it has been called semi-democratic. The point to be emphasized here is that these democracies are not only questioned because of the power of the monarch, but because also the culture of the people themselves, which is not yet cultivated to adapt to democratic values, such as individualism, freedom of speech, equality, minority rights, etc. So this has implied some important consequences with regard to the concept of citizenship adopted in the Constitution. And what I mean by citizenship here, following Marshall, the full membership of a community, given the hybrid structure of values in Arab community discussed earlier, the concept of citizenship was marginalized, paving the way for identity politics that is based on kinship, ethnicity, and sectarian divisions. Thus, different forms of the pre-political order became part and parcel of the new political order. Some authors call this phenomenon traditionalization of politics. Others call it the tribalization of politics. The picture is more or less is like what Jesus of Nazareth called one time in Luke, new wine into old wineskins. Probably Bishop Harley would like that. Um, it is impossible to enumerate in this limited time the stubborn consequences of the rise of identity politics, which are inherent in this hybrid concept of the state. I'll try to confine myself to the major ones, though. One immediate result of the traditionalization of politics is a threat it poses to the cohesiveness of the Kuwaiti social fabric and citizenship in the ideal sense of the term. Also, it is almost impossible to separate the rise of identity politics from the increased political polarization in Kuwait along ideology, personal lines, and religious sectarianism. The rise of religious extremism, on the other hand, is also another sign of this stubborn polarization. Let's not forget that Islamic and Arab countries remain at the top of the list of countries most vulnerable to terrorist attack in the world, according to a lot of statistics. Um, the picture is bleak, I agree, but there is a way out, I believe. We are just a young nation, and that would probably apply to all other Arab countries, actually. Uh, I will try to uh, summarize here because I see that we're running out of time. Um, although we might tend to, crit to criticize the Kuwaiti democratic experiment, which I called earlier a semi-democracy, it is a fact that this experience is a unique experience in this troubled Arab region. It is actually one important stage that our neighboring countries look out for in their transition to democracy. I believe that there are few factors that might suggest a major change in the traditional structure of values. Uh, one, <clears throat> Kuwaitis enjoy a good margin of freedom to criticize the existing social taboos, government officials, parliament members, and even ruling family members. I believe that these opposing views will contribute eventually to a deeper belief in democratic values. Second, Kuwait's political scene has witnessed the emergence of new social forces that want to transcend these traditional divisions, be it tribal, religious, or even ethnic. 
and come to cross-cutting actions defending ideals of citizenship and the genuine parliamentary democracy. A lot of movements like the anti-corruption movement, the emergence of new youth movements and the alliance between ideologically different opposition forces all like point out to a new new forces in on the scene of the Kuwaiti politics. Third, Kuwait is a young nation and um, a quarter of the Kuwaiti population is below the age of 15 while 21% is below is between 15 and 24. The median age of the country is 29 years old. This would actually give a priority to any discussion about education actually. Despite its limited democracy, Kuwait appears to want to promote, to promote a greater democratization as evidenced by the fact that in 2006, Kuwait introduced an educational module in its national high school curriculum called the Constitution and Human Rights, a one-year course in high school. The Constitution and Human Rights program is based on the principles of the universality of human rights. Um, and the values of the Kuwaiti constitution. is It is characterized um, as the first national human rights education program in the Gulf region. An advanced human rights course is actually offered to all Kuwait University students. Um, I will try to conclude here, um, and I will just uh, probably just stop here. All right, well, thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Dr. Mohammed. And uh, now uh, I would like to get back to Dr. Huda uh, with the question, uh, what do you see the role of Saudi nationalism today playing in uniting uh, the diversity? I think that's um, it's a very good and very important question. Um, First of all, if we look at Saudi Arabia as a country, we must never forget that it is a country that is, what, barely 80 years old. It has a population of 70% uh, under the age of 30. Um, the King Abdullah Scholarship Program has sent thousands and thousands of students abroad uh, to study, but not just for a degree, but also uh, for what I call the opening of mental horizons. They have come back. Um, they understand what their identity is. And I think it's very important to emphasize that, that their identity is within the structure and the limits of, of, of them being Saudis. In other words, um, they understand their history, they understand their traditions, they understand their religion. And at the same time, having had this education abroad, they came back to serve the country, but not necessarily wanting to live with the way their parents or grandparents have lived, where prior to the changes and the reforms that we are seeing today because of the young leadership uh, that we have, um, it was based on religion. So today we are seeing uh, a generation that are re-identifying and recreating their identity through the policies of the government, through the guideline and the roadmap that is Vision 2030, which includes basically every stage of one's life. And I feel that um, this discourse is important between them because they are seeing a direction. 
uh, obviously um, outside um, influences are affecting uh, their their goals, which include obviously um, the economic side, uh, employment, but all in all, the government through Vision 2030 is uh, it's created something that people are relating to and that is building unity uh, between the peoples and the citizens uh, of Saudi Arabia. Um, it's a new balance. Uh, and I think that we are still at the very beginning of this, but I do see a big future in this. Uh, and I think this is this is a page to be. This is we're living history, and I think that it's very difficult for us to um, to see if these goals uh, have been reached or are being reached. And it's 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 something that time will tell, basically. And uh, if I can turn it back, Dr. Shauki. Um, Help me to understand, does it, does, if, if we don't have this educational curriculum and this discourse in the Arab world right now, or if it's only in a nascent stage, then does it have to be the case that Arabs look towards the West to uh, learn how to engage in this type of discourse? Or is it possible to have an indigenous discourse within the Arab world where uh, these issues can be taught and educated in the schools, both at the, the lower level and at the secondary level? Dr. Schauke? Yeah. Hello. Hello again. Thank you. This is a great question. Very good question. Um, you know, we sh the premise is a little bit problematic. Um, is, you know, we go into this like uh, uh, debate uh, on what is race, what is racism, uh, and is it uh, Western or, oh no, our racism is different. Um, the, in the end, the realities are, are similar. Slavery is slavery. It's different from the plantations to domestic slavery, but at the same time in Morocco, for instance, sugar plantations existed during the Saudi period, and sugar was actually exported to Europe. So the meaning that slave as a chattel existed. Uh, albeit, you know, there are, like you, you, you mentioned in the introduction, that uh, there is, there in the Islamic in, uh, practice of slavery legally, it was never, uh, race was never acknowledged. Uh, racial slavery never acknowledged. The Hamitic theory was never accepted. But in the culture, and in cultural, you know, cultural perception, these, all these notions of racism existed. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter because meaning the outcome, the impact and the perception remain the same, meaning that one group of people have been undermined, marginalized and oppressed and exploited. So for now, how do we learn? So for, go back to that, uh, uh, to racism, slavery, and, uh, it's actually, in, in, in medieval time and uh, early modern, Atlantic slavery practices, they learned from Mediterranean practices of slavery. Even the Hamitic theory, the Hamitic theory that was used in Islamic tradition, although it's not Quranic or in the hadith, existing the hadith, uh, it is from, uh, uh, from the Middle Eastern 
Talmudic traditions, but nevertheless, it was appropriated by the Arabs. And it was used in Islamic discourse to undermine one culture, which is the culture of of uh, black people. And we go, you know, we go from Ibn Munabih to Ibn Hawqal, who actually, you know, uh, they looked at the, the, uh, the, 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 the black as the other, defined by terms that they are uh, primitive uh, uh, and, uh, and inferior and therefore enslavable. So this, this, this culture was informed the, the Atlantic. So why not now, why not the Atlantic? does not inform the freedom. So we, this culture, they, one you know, benefits from the other. So the point is like the human rights, the, the abolition of slavery inform one another. It's, it's human civilization that learn from each other. Now, yes, there are no, uh, that's the answer to your question is that, you know, uh, learning from the Western discourse. Yes, why not? They can learn from the Western discourse. So in, 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 in Morocco, for instance, there are, there are no museums that will uh, uh, exhibit or uh, in, inform, uh, educate people about the, the culture of, uh, of, uh, of slavery and its legacies. There are no school curriculum that, uh, or school programs that teach about slavery. So how do we, how do we you know, and, uh, and raise this awareness to eradicate not, not to, to indicate racism where actually slavery is not recognized, acknowledged, and taught. So basically, in order to correct the present injustices, we have to talk about the past injustices, historical injustices. And, uh, and uh, that, so that's the, it's this debate. So the problem for me, that if we were going to turn in circles, if we don't change the epistemological approach, because it is social injustices, just social injustices breed epistemic injustices. So it is, if we change the epistemological approach, that will actually lead us to uh, embrace the realities of the past and move forward, uh, of, of, uh, move forward towards the eradication of racism. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Shafi. And uh, now I would like to go back to uh, Dr. Smail. And uh, I, I want to ask you, how is the racism issue different in the north versus the, the south uh, of Sudan? Yes. Um, uh, also, just for, for the record, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm a journalist. Uh, um, I mean, in terms of understanding how racism was a part of Sudan's civil war, I think that that would be a better way of, of, uh, of putting it. The independence and separation of South Sudan to become its own country in 2011 um, is intertwined with, with the issue of, of racism. This is when I when I mentioned that when political and economic marginalization and social marginalization um, are intertwined with ideas of race of, of color, then that's that plays a part in in why uh, a, a, a people who feel that you know have been uh, mistreated, who have had injustice done upon them, felt it necessary to create their own country. 
that is the case of South Sudan. It was not uncommon for South Sudanese to feel disenfranchised um, in, in, in their country. Um, in, 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 uh, in Khartoum, in, in Sudan, for Northern Sudanese for the longest time, um, the conflict in South Sudan was labeled as um, a Western colonial um, uh, plan to divide, you know, the largest country in Africa, the largest country in the Arab world, um, without recognizing the legitimate uh, grievances of, of the people of, of southern Sudan. Um, the political elite in Khartoum failed um, to reach a, 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 a formula of governance uh, in the Sudan that made South Sudanese, at the end of the day, feel it necessary to create their own country. Now, between South Sudan and, and, and North Sudan, he speaks specifically about ethnicism and racism. Um, um, it, you know, even though South Sudan is its own independent country today, that does not negate the fact that within this new, newly independent country that you have ethnicism also, you have marginalization also. Uh, I mean, racism and ethnicism are, you know, like killing an onion, you know, it goes down from level to level to level. Uh, so what used to be described and framed as Arab against African in Sudan, um, in South Sudan today, it's Denka Nuer, and then among the Denka themselves, you know, Denka Bor or Denka Bahar Ghazal, you know, different, you know, levels of, of ethnic, uh, feelings of ethnic uh, uh, superiority or and, and, and tribalism. Uh, in, in the north today, you still, you know, the country still suffers conflict um, that where identity is, is intertwined with issues of political and economic marginalization. The conflict in Darfur, you know, the conflict in the Blue Nile state, the conflict in uh, the Nuba Mountains. Um, where you have, when you have a political elite that is the main beneficiary of, of the, um, the, of the wealth of, of the political power, and there, there is a lack of a, um, a genuine, genuine political participation, a genuine democracy. That is a recipe for, for conflict uh, that exacerbates, you know, issues of racism that play uh, in, in part. I mean, and, and these are, I mean, at the political and economic level, I haven't even discussed, you know, social issues of marriages, you know, of, of you know, of, of uh, people of different, you know, who try to marry from different ethnic groups. And you know what kind of reactions their families or their own local communities have. Um, you know, I mean, a phrase that's very common in Sudan um, is 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 you know you know is to ask you know if someone has quote unquote uh, slave blood. Um, it was was this person you know um, a descendant of a slave or has someone in their family who was descendant of slave? So that's also how it plays in uh, socially. Uh, so between both Sudan and South Sudan, I mean, I think it's just uh, the, the clearest example in the region when you have, when we don't deal with these issues, a part of the country sees it better to go its own way and create its own space. Thank you, Asma. We really appreciate it. I want to turn it back to Mohammed uh, to finish up this round. Uh, Dr. Mohammed, help me to understand uh, how do you teach prejudice, how do you teach anti-racism in 
the Arabs, uh, Arab world among students, and how do students or young people receive those ideas in the schools? Dr. Muhammad? Uh, thank you, Josh. Do, do you hear me now? Is it better? It's fantastic. It's perfect. All right. It was probably the earpiece that you didn't like. Um, so, yes. Um, well, I myself was working uh, as the head of the Kuwait Center for Active Citizenship for such a long period of time. We collaborated with the Amiri Diwan in many in initiatives um, to work against uh, extremism, um, issues of tolerance and acceptance. It was mainly because of the nature of the Kuwaiti society. It was mainly a, uh, trying to promote ideas of tolerance between Sunnis and Shias. Um, and part of the work that we've done for such a long time, and we at one point collaborated with uh, uh, sim similar uh, institutions in, in the GCC, uh, is that we visit high schools and I'm like just like as a with other uh, professors and we work on workshops um, but I myself loved it the most when I put my students into um, into an experience just um, to make them learn through doing things. So I, I put them in like th theatrical scenes. Uh, I, I let them feel firsthand how does it feel to get someone before you in, in a line if you go in to buy something or you want to enter an air airplane or something just because of his skin color or because of, because of the color of their eyes. I, I put my students or the participants in these workshops and I let them feel the in the first hand, how does it how does it feel to suffer? And and I and I believe and probably this is really um, this is really classic. But the Greeks were always talking about paideia, and and when they talk about paideia, they 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 mean deep education, and deep edu education is, is something different from what we read, is what we live and 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 practice. And uh, so through these experiences, uh, we tried to tell what we couldn't write, what we don't want to write to them. And then after we put them in these experiences, we just sit in like circles and start to talk about what they felt um, from both sides, the oppressor and the oppressed. And you just can't imagine, can't imagine how uh, how amazing ideas come from these youngsters that's beautiful thank you so much Mohammed. i think what we're going to do now is we're going to turn it over to our special guest bishop aubrey harley founder of health choice ministries international and senior pastor of healthy choice ministries in baltimore maryland uh, uh bishop harley i want you to take as much time as you need to to be able to sum up what you've what you've heard from our other speakers and to express whatever you you want to comment upon and and wrap it up in whatever way you see appropriate. 
Uh, again, Aubrey Harley, I turn it over to you. Okay, thank you so very much, and greetings to um, Dr. Anthony and to all of you. Uh, heaven smile upon you. This is my prayer. Uh, first of all, before I go into uh, what each of you have covered, so to speak, I just want to make a couple of uh, uh, comments. And when we look at race in America and all that has gone on, especially with the George Floyd in the last um, few months, what is so important, they always, they have this African proverb, you'll never really understand the actual hunt of the the lion until you hear the lion's story. It, it almost seems like the hunter is always glorified. And it, it baffles me sometimes that even in America, what we call white America, they tend to uh, do what they call scientific studies on every group and become an expert. I recall years ago, and this may sound a little personal, uh, when women were going through their personal adjustments in their bodies, it was so uh, weird to find out that you had a male doctor trying to come up with the right devices to make women feel comfortable during those times of, of visitation during the month. And they never really got comfortable until they began to ask the woman, what makes you feel comfortable? And the women begin to get proper care in that particular area. Now, when we look at this, one of the major problems in America is that America pulls from a 6% of their pool. And their 6% of their pool is usually um, uh, white, is usually a person who's a male, uh, married, heterosexual, and over 30, college educated, and professional. So when you pull from that 6% pool, you still have about a 94% pool that you really have not pulled from to get a consensus of what it is and how to combat it. So that's that's the number one problem. So you, you you're getting the same rhetoric from each political person that comes on the platform, there's actually no change because you are pulling from 6% of, of the population. Now, it makes it a, a slippery slope even when it comes down to women and what they had to go through in terms of discrimination and prejudice and, and the like. The problem with that is that here in America, we tend to hail like we push, push women. But when I did some investigating, I found out that countries like Cuba, China, Iraq, and Afghanistan, ratio-wise, have more women in political power than actually uh, uh, America does. And so when you take all the information and you really at, look at the plight of the African-American male, it is even more daunting. And I'm reading this book called um, The Black Tax, and it's by uh, Sean Rochester. And he gives an um, a economic point of view of why racism does not change. And of course, it comes through education mainly, but more importantly, it comes through what we call the Black Tax. Uh, 400 years ago, 
you had about 4 million slaves. And once they were freed upon the Emancipation Proclamation, they owned less than 2% of America's wealth. Now, 400 years later, African-Americans are now 40 to 41 million people in America, and they still own less than 2%. Now, what's so confusing with white America is that they can see a person like me. I live in a pretty good neighborhood. I live in majority or all white neighborhood. And I got a lot of trees around me, a lot of birds I hear every morning. But here's the problem. The black tax goes on into every fiber of America, especially in their uh, mortgage industry. Wells Fargo, Bank of America just got sued for giving um, predatory loans, subprime loans. Though African-Americans had equal credit as whites or they had better credit, they gave them a rate as if their credit scores was 71 cents or 71 points lower uh, than white people. They would give the whites uh, the good prime rates and give blacks the subprime, and that causes a problem. So now we all live on Heaven Boulevard. We all have a four-bedroom house with three-car garage and et cetera. But guess what? I'm more likely to go into foreclosure because the same banking that gave me my mortgage gave you, as perhaps a Caucasian person, a mortgage that's uh, a quarter of a percent cheaper or 1% or even as high as 2% cheaper. That's number one. And then it moves into the car industry. Uh, Honda was sued. You could go down all the major uh, uh, players in uh, cars and giving out car loans and how they were sued. And they were sued because African-Americans went in with great credit, and yet they were given these bad interest rates on their cars. So when you look at uh, what causes racism to be uh, continue in America, it is in every fiber of it. So when you see white America saying all lives matter, it really doesn't matter to a certain degree because they're looking at me, oh, you live on my street. You drive a car like me but they're not realizing that everything that I have that you have, I'm paying a higher ticket price, which constantly keeps a group of people in another uh, uh, risk category of loss, of um, foreclosure, of repossession. It goes on and on and on. This is not only in the mortgage industry, which they got sued. It's not only in the car industry, but it's in the insurance industry. It's in the health industry. It's when we go to apply for a job. If our names sound too black, they throw the application in the trash can. I know what I'm talking about because my wife been working in human resources for over 25 to 30 years. They throw it in the trash can. The next thing they do, if your name sounds too black, of course, they give you higher interest rates. So the the problem is those of us who are in power, particularly those who are white, 
what it doesn't matter what occupation you work in. I think until whites get an understanding that this thing may not be skin color as it is systematic in our institutions, we're never going to get rid of this because we know that uh, racism is conquered through education and empowerment through positions, status, and education alike. The last point that I want to make up uh, or come up in in this discussion is the religious point of view. And Dr. Anthony uh, pointed out that in 1619, we all were brought over here as prisoners of war. I don't like to say come over here as slaves. It's, it's, It's greater than that. We were forced over here. So to me, that's prisoners of war. And then we were given a Bible. And and much of the Bible was redacted and better known as the slave Bible. And you can find that out in the Washington Bible Museum. Much of that was redacted. So even when we preach the word of God, we have to go in the word of God and properly exegese it and apologize it for our community. And so with that being said, um, you have this Christianity, which we all should know by now, that has its ties into white supremacy. And so they use the Bible to give Black people a conscience that they really should not have had, that even when they are not watched, they are yet under control. And this is systematically ran through the African-American church. That's why you could go in a Black community, there are churches on every corner, but the crime rate is still high. Because one of the reasons is, is that um, we were taught by Gentiles that the law doesn't exist. And many Blacks that came over here, though they weren't Christians, they might have been Muslims, they might have been Moors, and they lived by certain laws. So when the Gentiles begin to teach in our churches, they begin to push a doctrine called grace, which that means that, okay, if I feel it, um, I can do it, and God going to help me anyway, that kind of thing. So Blacks have been removed from the religious constraint or control. And that mirrors throughout all the uh, Black community. So all of you have touched, I think, wonderfully on the social scientist aspect. But when I look at it as a Black African male, this is not just a social science problem. This is a spiritual problem. Because you can read all the books on uh, on this subject matter. You could pontificate until you blew in the face. But until people, until the oppressor sees themselves having a spiritual problem, not just an economic problem, not just a, an equality problem, it's a spiritual problem. And the very Bibles that they gave us to digest they didn't thoroughly learn it themselves. So as a a matter of fact with with that, it it now has weakened our constraints for the religious movement, 
which gave a lot of Blacks their consciousness, because Blacks are very spiritual by nature, with or without a Bible. So I, I, I just find it fascinating when I think Kush Kush mentioned that this is the first platform that uh, Sudan or the Sudanese have ever had concerning race, when we all have been um, affected by it. And I think there was a guy named Dr. Cleo Monago. He talks about that Blacks are in a trance. And this trance is caused by um, post-trauma white supremacy uh, type of syndrome. But we're actually in the trance. We, we get up, we do what we have to do, but we're in the trance. And we are suffering from post-trauma because every time a police come behind me just to give me a ticket, and I think I'm a pretty good citizen, I concern myself with, with it. I do not see police the same way you all see police. And we could go after story after story after story after story. So my question to all of you, and if you care to answer or not, we need platforms where all Caucasians are on the platforms form and they are asked a question. What are you going to do about your white problem? Because it's not a black problem. It's a white problem. And what are you going to do about it? Because I think a lot of times we try to be politically correct and we hem hard around it because we don't want to hurt people's feelings. But the bottom line, it is a white problem. And we need to have a panel of white men between the age of 35 and 65 or 80 years old and say, what are you going to do about your problem? Because if if white people can get to a point where they admit that there is something in their vision that is off, that is not spiritual, that is ungodly, that is causing all of this duress throughout the world, until they do that. And when you are on the uh, top of the feeding chain so long, you think that there is no problem because you set the rules. And at the end of the day, in my conclusion, it's a spiritual problem. Until we correct that, excuse my French, people will read the books that they desire and they are still pee on the wall because it's a spiritual problem. Dr. Anthony pointed it out a few weeks ago on one of our Zoom. It's a, it's a piety problem. It's almost like people have forgotten spiritual constraints. Even if you're agnostic or a non-believer, you have to believe that there's something greater than yourself, even if it's just an old grandmother who died 40 years ago. So um, I would get involved in this discussion, but I don't want to take up the time. But we have to do something about the systematic racism that keep people marginalized and on a defense. And it's in the banking system. It's in the political system. It's in the criminal criminal justice system is in every fiber 
And guess what? That 6% write those policies. They have these tank think groups that are majority Republicans, and they write those policies. They're your brothers, they're your sisters, they're your mothers, and they're your neighbors. So I admonish all of you to help us do our part. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bishop Harley. We very much appreciate that. And I want that to be the last word. So with that, we're going to close it out. And I want to thank everyone for coming and joining us today. Thank you all.